the reason to tune into the show is to actually realize that we can control those intrusive thoughts and those ruminations and that anxiety and that depression. We can actually manage, learn to manage that. It's inside of us. So we can't control events and circumstances, but we can edit the code. This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. The neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now here's your host, Toby Passman. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special neuroscientist guest, Dr. Caroline Leaf who is a communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscientist with a master's and PhD in communication pathology and a BSc in logopedics, specializing in cognitive and metacognitive neuropsychology. Since the early 1980s, she has researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health, and the formation of memory. And she was one of the first in her field to study how the brain can change neuroplasticity with directed mind input. So Dr. Leaf, super happy to have you on the show with us today. Thanks, Toby. It's great to be with you. And I'm intrigued by the name wetsuit. I know you live in Florida, but like, is that, is there a bit of a relationship going on there? <laughs> it, maybe subconsciously. It was, it's an inside <laughs> reference to a Childish Gambino uh, screenplay. It was a, a, okay. yeah, so not, not really, but uh, I had to throw the neuro on the end of the podcast. So so it was distinguished that there actually was a neuroscience podcast and, you know, it wasn't, we weren't going to be talking about surfing. I had to make that clear. So yes, well, you surfing the brainwaves. So there you go. Surfing the brainwaves. There, there you, you go. go. Yes. That'd be a cool logo to have, like, like a little surfing icon, like over some yeah, exactly. brainwaves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've actually done that quite a bit with my teaching. I've got this whole really cool slide with surfers and brains and brainwaves and everything. So so yeah, it's a very nice way of explaining the brain. So we can play around that analogy and it fits in with your podcast perfectly. <laughs> You're not kidding. Yeah. So tell me a little about just, you know, you, you've gotten really deep into uh, a super interesting niche of neuroscience, but tell me kind of what, what originally got you intrigued about kind of this thinking about thinking or metacognition and, and just how the mind, how we're able to uh, kind of uh, affect how our mind processes all these different things? Well, it began years ago. I'm, I've been in the field 38 years now, so it's long. And um, it began when the I was always interested in the brain, wanted to become a neurosurgeon as a child and wanted to also be able to teach people. So then I thought of psychiatry and I got into medicine. And I was fortunate to be able, at, at, the, at the university where I had applied that they had done an experimental we're starting an experimental degree which was a combination of part medicine part communication pathology psychology a bit of neuroscience neurology uh, fascinating so I, I actually went into that and that really got me going in it was an, a nightmare to do because they squashed seven years into four years so we literally work seven days a week and I remember in the midst of doing it thinking why on earth am I doing this to myself but once I finished that I went on to my master's and PhD in more neuroscience direction and cognitive neuroscience and kind of taking that thread through and I'm very glad I started there because I would never ever have got into into this track otherwise if I'd gone straight into pure medicine because what I was exposed to from very early on was this understanding that the the brain can change and even though one of my neurology lecturers neurology slash neuroscience lecturers said to us in one of our lectures one of the days that oh hey listen the brain can't change because it was what they believed in the 80s and that therefore you need to teach your patients to compensate and there was a whole lecture on that and I remember challenging this professor not in a negative way but just saying how is that possible because I'm different now at the end of this lecture than I was when I walked into this lecture so I've changed my knowledge has increased my experience has changed and my my brain therefore has changed because my my, my brain's the organ that my mind is using and the answer was it's a ridiculous question. That was what the statement back to me was. So I've done actually done a TED talk, the ridiculous question of neuroplasticity. And basically that launched me. That was the question. And this professor wasn't being aggressive, but just said, look, that's ridiculous. The brain can't change. And I said, really? He said, okay, well, go research it. And I did. And I said, well, what should I, where should I start? And um, he said, well, 
traumatic brain injury. There's hardly any research on it because like if your brain's traumatized and damaged, well, you know, just teach your patients to compensate. So start there. I don't think he thought I would take it seriously, but I did. And this is 38 years later. I'm still doing research. I had spent um, 25 years practicing clinically, but from day one, I saw that when we direct, when we understand mind, and I know that's a massive statement because it's considered the hard question of science, but as we start to understand mind is separate and distinct from brain and body, but that the brain and body, that the brain and body embody the mind, and that they have this unique relationship and that we are, you and me communicating are the result of that relationship. It's fascinating. And if you then track that back and think, okay, well, if you look at how someone who's had a traumatic brain injury, how they're communicating, how can we track back from what, how they're presenting in the world and track back to what's actually happened in the mind brain body connection and can you fix that? And so that's where my research went. And yes, the answer to that is yes. I showed that when you direct the mind and you can change the structuring of the brain, the brain can change. Um, we didn't have MRIs then. We had CT scans, but we saw changes in the brain. By the mid-90s, it was with fMRI technology. We could see the changes happening in the brain. Neuroplasticity is now on everyone's. Everyone knows about neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to be changed by the mind. And I stress that because the brain can't change itself. The brain is is not what we call self-emergent like genes are also not self-emergent when you're dead you're dead when your brain's not working with the mind it doesn't do anything so um, that was fascinating and that just spurred all this research that I continued to do when I practiced as well as practicing I was doing research and I went underground and I say underground because for almost 20 years I didn't actually publish I was doing hardcore in the field research my objective was to go and put a whole lot of publications under my belt my objective was to actually find out what's going on and work with humans in the most distressing conditions and the most wonderful conditions and find out you know what is the core similarity between everyone and what's going on with mind brain thoughts emotions things and communication behavior brain damage dementia i just wanted to see it in the real world and so i had a unique opportunity to do that while i was practicing this was back in south africa i also worked in places like rwanda and so on and done, done a lot of work in this country we've been here for quite a few years in education corporate wherever across different socioeconomic divides etc and what i have seen is that us as humans we have this unique incredible brain and body run by the mind and this combination is in life so we are in the environment from the moment we conceived we are in an environment as our brain develops we start responding and that response to the environment is encoded and much like we you know we have a computer and a computer is the hardware we often see that being the analogy for understanding the brain the brain is the hardware and the mind is the software that's this is maybe a new part for a lot of people the mind is actually the software that drives the 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 brain so the software that drives the computer but then there's someone who's actually got to create the software and there's someone who's got to actually code the software in and then there's someone who's got to edit any changes and there's also you've got to charge the computer so there's an energy source required so mind fulfills all those categories Brain and body fulfill the category of being the unique, incredibly complex hardware through which that we can put the code in, we can put the, you know, the software in, we can code it in, we can fix the errors, we can charge the computer, mind is doing all of that work. So all that is the experiences of life, and they code it in, and I wanted to understand that process, because if I have, if I have a conversation with you, I'm experiencing it, this is being encoded in into my brain and then I will have an experience from this. Uh, I mean, this is an experience, but it's going to impact how I function. And it's gonna be different to how you are responding to this conversation and different to every viewer and every listener. So our unique response to this encoded information is unique for each of us. So it's a unique filtering system, the mind, a unique response system, the brain and body, unique to each of us. So our responses to this information and everything in life is gonna be unique. So if that's the case, what happens if we have a toxic experience like the isolation in COVID or the grief of COVID or the uncertainty of COVID or the isolation that has impacted kids not going to school and all these, these things that have had a tremendous impact on our levels of anxiety and depression and mental 
mental health. So anxiety, depression, mental health, etc. Those are the outpourings, the result of the expression of what we've encoded. So we've encoded this whole experience just by the nature of the mind-brain-body connection. You can't not have encoded. We encode everything that we're exposed to. So what can we do if it's COVID? It's happened. It's in our brain. What can we do? It's happened. What can we do about it? So it's the, the so what we as humans can do is we can edit the code. We can actually go in and edit that traumatic brain injury. We can go in and edit the um, potential signs of dementia, the learning disabilities, the um, the extreme anxiety, the panic attacks. All of those are telling us that there is. This is the communication. This is what's happening. This is how we're presenting. And we can go in and, and look at that and we can go back and edit that. Much like if you, okay, so let me say this, um, that if you are like in extreme anxiety and um, it's tripled over at the pandemic and it's like blocking your creativity and your ability and it's like stopping you sleeping and which is very common now at the moment and it's, 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 it's really, really got bad. That doesn't mean you have a brain illness. It means that the, the, the whole situation has encoded and you couldn't get away from that and you've responded and it's been a toxic experience or a negative experience and that's impacted how you function so that code is now showing up as a signal telling you that hey listen what's in you is disturbing your creativity your functionality it's it's creating a, a vulnerability in your brain and your body structurally because that to toxic your brain it's not wired for that toxic code and you've got to fix it. So anxiety is actually, the increase in anxiety is actually like a call to action. It's a signal calling us to action to, to dig deep and find out why. So it's kind of like I open my computer and I'm working very nicely and everything just freezes. So something is going on with my computer. Is it the software? Is it the hardware? Is it both? So I try and fix it and maybe I can. I edit and I get it going. Or I, it just gets worse and just shuts down completely. Now I can't do anything. So I have to go to Apple or wherever and I have to get someone to help me edit the code and work out where's the software problem? Where's the hardware? Is it a combination? What do I do? How do I go from here, et cetera? And that's what I've studied all these years is how do we do that? What's the process? How do we do that? How can we improve on that skill? and how can we apply that to the day-to-day -day struggles and the mental health issues that every human has the day-to-day -day stuff and how do we apply to the big problems the mental health problems we which have been which are like a, a massive traumatic event combat um, abuse rape you know the massive things that happen to us that completely wreck our lives early childhood experiences the different types of trauma etc cetera, etc cetera, to the day-to-day -day struggles not enough likes on instagram or whatever you know, the fact in an argument in a relationship, all important, all different levels of things happening to us that are wiring in. How do we deal with those? Because those are disturbing how we function. And because the code goes against the natural wiring of the brain and the body, it's messing up how the computer works. So we've got all these signals. The computer doesn't work, the anxiety. So we've got to go and look at those to come back to find the source. So that's a big answer to, and you can unpack it in any way. Thank you for giving me such a lot of time to answer it. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, definitely a lot complex of complex process. Yes, for a complex organ. If you're interested in learning to improve your cognition through the use of nutrition, supplementation, nootropics, exercise, and sleep, go ahead and check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com and book a free 15-minute NeuroHealth Coaching consultation to see if NeuroHealth Coaching is for you. In NeuroHealth Coaching, we review your current cognitive status and work with you to improve your cognition through the use of the latest research-backed neuroscientific tips and tools. I mean, this, this is the ability to actually alter and edit the code of our mind. I mean, this is something that probably wasn't even talked about too much before we started actually accepting that neuroplasticity was a real thing that we could actually be able to physically change the brain and rewire the brain in, in new ways. So I'm curious now with, with all of your decades of research, what have you found to be the best, some of the best tools to actually go about um, editing the code of the way our mind works. Excellent question. So the, the 
this there's um there's a lot but it's it's there's a lot of techniques and there's a lot of amazing techniques out there that people can use what i've tried to do is to understand the system of how this whole thing works and then if that's and once you to understand the system, then you can use the system to your advantage. So the system that I've developed is called the NeuroCycle. And it's based on a theory. It's based on the theoretical theoretical research, clinical application in all different fields, as I've already mentioned, dementias, Alzheimer's, um, learning disabilities, extreme trauma, et cetera, et cetera, um, all that kind of all those areas, as well as the day-to-day -day struggles, et cetera. Um, and so it's the system that um, is where we're using our mind to manage our mind. To manage the brain and the body, so that's it. so the, the using of mind to manage the mind is the whole editing of the code. So it's first of all, you know, am I getting enough energy? Am I plugging the computer in? Is there even energy going? And that would be your most basic stuff, like you know, obviously you've got to look at things like diet and exercise and whatever. But and, and in addition to that, we've that, that's sort of the nutritional side of things and, and making sure that your your the hardware is functioning properly but the energy part is more one of um, getting myself into a neurophysiological state where I can actually use do something because if my computer is doing this on the screen I, I mean you can't do, if it's shut down and blacked out you, you're stuck so we have to just get a little bit it's charge it again let's restart the computer and that's where things like the compression comes in so one of the first elements is let's just calm down the neurophysiology and that's that's decompression or brain and decompression exercises to prepare the brain and the body um, and that's things like you know the traditional things breathing all the different types of breathing the different ways of meditating and there's a million different ways you can do that you can do it super quick in 10 seconds you can do it in longer visualization um, exercise movement um, laughing so there's a lot of those very well documented scientific um, ex elements that help to get the computer charged again to get you to that neurophysiological state where you can get a little bit deeper uh, get further with now and now that i'm switched back on okay now let me now start gathering awareness and what do i gather awareness of the what am i how am i showing up what am i saying what am i doing what am i feeling what am i feeling in my body and what is my perspective? So those are four categories. I call those signals, warning signals. And those are collectively being produced by the mind-brain-body connection to help you. Everything about your mind, brain, and body is on your side. It's all for helping you. So when we feel like our brain and body are failing us, it's more that they're telling us something, that there's something going on. So our natural instinct is, oh, I'm in pain, suppress the pain, move from the pain because it's scary. But actually, when we embrace the pain and face the pain, we can get, we can actually then sort find out the source much like an example used by a colleague of mine is that if you stand on a nail and it goes really deeply into your foot and it really hurts and you go to the doctor and you suffer this terrible pain in my foot and the doctor says okay here's some ibuprofen that'll help with the pain and sends you away you're still in pain the pain goes for a bit because the ibuprofen in um, for temp temporarily reduced the inflammation and help with a bit of the pain but you didn't remove the source you haven't identified the source so i mean that sounds like such an obvious example but it's very very easy to if you're using that analogy it's really kind of easy to um to apply this to our life so the gathering so we've done the decompression now to get to this whole analogy of the nail and the foot thing what do i do next is i've now got to not just look at the symptom i've got to look at what the symptom the source of the symptom is so i've got to gather in order to even start i have to gather awareness of my pain and that pain will come up in those four categories so gathering awareness is describing the pain that i'm in and when i say pain it's a big it's it's a kind of an umbrella word for a little bit of anxiety to a lot that's crippling so it goes along the whole range of one to ten a little bit of depression a ton of depression, a little bit of irritation. And then from think of a scale of one to 10. So, you know, it's wherever you are on, on that scale in that moment. So obviously it's a major thing. It's 10, 9, 10. If it's a more minor thing, it's a one, two. We don't ignore even the minor things either because those can accumulate. So if you have lots of little minor stuff, those and you don't deal with them, they basically accumulate like dirt in your house and you go and it's eventually it's going to be a mess. So we want to pay attention to everything. And the way that we gather awareness is by looking at those four signals. So once I've gathered awareness, amazing neurophysiologies happen, incredible stuff. I will start connecting with my non-conscious mind. Now, my non-conscious mind is operating 24-7, and it is the fastest and most phenomenal part of us where um, our wisdom 
momentum is, our driving force is, our aliveness. Um, it is um, basically helps us to stand back and observe ourselves and give ourselves wisdom, give others wisdom, have deep discussions like we're having now. This is all this incredible wisdom that's in us and it operates 24 seven. The conscious mind, it's only awake when we're awake and it's working now with an unconscious mind for us to have this deep discussion. But when you go to sleep, your conscious mind switches off and your brain and body regenerate. Between the conscious and the non-conscious is the subconscious, which is a bridge. So when I look at these four signals, I'm actually going to start pulling up thoughts from the non-conscious through the subconscious bridge into the conscious mind, not unconscious, non-conscious. Unconscious is when we sleep or when you get knocked out or you have an anesthetic or something else. So it's a state that the brain and body go into. It's like a, a, um, a, it's a, it's, it's a pressing neural firing and things so that you go to sleep versus the mind, states of mind that we're in. So while you're awake now, non-conscious, subconscious and conscious are all working very hard to process what I'm saying. And they're working when you're sleeping tonight, just your non-conscious is going to be working to do all the work of regeneration and sorting, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so coming back to, we've done decompression, we're gathering awareness of the four signals. As I gather awareness of the four signals, I'm going to start bringing something up and I'm going to bring up and I'm holding a tree here. This is like a little toxic looking wiry tree. And the reason I have this is because in our brain, our experiences are coded into these tree-like structures and then neurons and these parts of dendrites and um, the axons. And so this structure is really good and as an analogy because it looks like this in the brain. And so every experience we have from in the womb at a certain point, obviously, to where we're at now is being coded in. So coded into the brain and the body, it's coded into these, these wiry looking things. Um, good ones, have a nice healthy looking one. Okay, so for the good ones and those bad ones, and then you know you have some really good ones and you have some really bad ones. So it's all those those scales that I was speaking about. So when I talk about coding, I'm talking about wiring. Now, not only is it in the brain in the structure, but it's also in every cell of the body, and every cell of the body has a structural change as well. So the cytoskeleton, which holds the cell in place, has got very complex structures in that also hold the memory, which is fascinating. So we have 37 to 100 trillion cells, which means this conversation is going into a tree that looks like this, not a wiry tree, it's a good tree. And also a change in our cytoskeleton and right down to the level of our DNA in every cell. So that's why we have body memory. You hear about somatic memory and body memory and yoga for and movement therapy and all these and laughing and all these things are fantastic because they help to release um because if you have a lot of toxicity that your brain you've got toxicity blocks in your body and those things can help release that different for every person different amounts different ways and that's where the decompression activities also will facilitate that kind of process so decompression is done at the beginning but it can be done at any stage during the process of um, deconstructing and finding these things okay so gather awareness brings them up as soon as i'm aware of these you may not see everything in the first moment you won't see everything it's going to take you at least 63 days to really see what's on here. And so there's a time frame involved. So it's around about nine weeks that you're going to take to really get a handle on what the anxiety was. And someone may be thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't wait nine weeks to manage the anxiety. Every day you do this, you'll feel more in control. But to get the full control and the full understanding, it takes that long to rewire. And, and this is why people tend to get stuck is because they want a quick fix. We live in quick fix world at the moment. You know, give me the tablet, give me the five steps, give me, I want five steps to work now and fix me instantly. Give me the quick tip. Those are just temporary band-aids that until you've done the work and you can use them, I have nothing against the, the hacks and the tips and things that are great. I even give those to people, but I always point them towards you have to do the work of finding the source. So that I can help you in the moment of your panic attack and your anxiety or your learning difficulty or whatever it may be. But you, at the end of the day, you're going to have to get a good brain building, learning, detoxing process in place so that's another huge thing that's part of this so as soon as i'm now gathered awareness of this i have now weakened it so i'm going to shake this thing and the shakiness is meant to kind of give it an analogy of as i'm aware then the thought which is the neuron with the dendrites and in the dendrites there's information and that information are all the memories that are clustered into this thought complex and this thought complex represents concepts so it could be your experience in COVID. It could be that childhood abuse. It could be that experience with uh, in a toxic relationship. It could be that bullying you had in the off in the workplace. Whatever, it's all in there in these different. So 
each experience doesn't just have one memory. It has a bunch of stuff that's happening all in one go. And all those memories cluster and they group, they categorize inside the brain into these clusters. But if they're in the non-conscious, they're driving me. And whatever I think about the most grows. So if I'm, if I'm paying a lot of attention to this, if I'm going to work every day, anticipating another day of hell, I am growing this. Now, I'm not saying that it isn't hell at work. I'm just saying that uh, an awareness, or, and that will produce this tremendous anxiety. If we obviously we want to get out of that work environment or that home environment if possible, but while you're in there and transitioning, you need to know how to manage. So I'm not decrying the extent, the, the extreme situations, but in the in the in the general, as soon as you um, focus on something, gather awareness, which takes your attention and focus to this point, you destabilize this thing. This thing is a bunch of chemicals, vibrations, energy flow, um, proteins, proteins folded incorrectly, abnormal energy flow, a lot of inflammation, your in immune system hates these for good reason. These disturb your health and increase your vulnerability to disease and your immune system is all about protecting you. So it will send out immune factors. So there's inflammation and all kinds of stuff. And so this is not a good state. You can live with this for years, but the more you live with this, the worse you become physically, the more your mental health is impacted, the more your anxiety increases, et cetera, et cetera. So once we've gone to awareness state, we've now pulled these up and we've weakened them. Something that's weakened means I can change it. Non-conscious, it's strong. Conscious, it's weakened. But in weakening it, it's very overwhelming. So especially if it's a huge thing. So we just have to do it in very small bursts of time. So when we work and do the neurocycle of which decompression is the preparation, gather awareness is the first step, you want to limit the time you spend. So I always say to people, 15, minim 15 minutes minimum, and well, you know, you can go less, but 45 max, and then you don't do any more work on that big thing in the day, you just end the day with the fifth step, and I'm going to tell you what that is now, okay, so then you gather awareness, the next thing is you need to reflect on what you've gathered, so I've pulled this thing up, I'm aware of these, let's say, anxiety, stomach ache, um, getting irritated often and perspective life sucks. Okay. So there's like the four basic things I identify the first time I do it. So those are all pointing towards a thought that's pulling up a thought. And in the top part, the dendrites over here, I'm going to have the detail of how I'm seeing myself. What's my interpretation? What is, what am I saying about myself that's in the situation or related to the situation? So in here are the details of the words that I'm saying, um, the emotions that I'm feeling, the choices that I've made, et cetera, et cetera inside here so the signals take me to this and so that now this is i'm editing at the moment this is a whole editing i'm looking for the problem i'm finding i'm looking at the software that's inside the hardware this is the software this is the program and now i'm going to say okay well where does that come from it's attached to this tree so i'm going to have to deconstruct and find, go right down to here to get there so how do i do that so i've now need to go to step two which is, is this reflect step, we are asked why, why do I, that's what I'm seeing, why, why am I having this emotion, and it's, so it's the, it's the asking, answering, and discussing, you immediately want to then capture on paper what you have gathered and reflected on, the writing process, we all know, everyone talks about journaling, there's two stages of writing you need to go through, so step three and step four, both writing processes, the first one is a deep, insightful gathering of data, writing down what you've gathered and reflected on, which then pulls up other related thoughts and digs up and kind of like digs the soil away from the root if this is a tree. It starts showing and revealing the errors in the code. And it's so day one, you might only see a glimpse of one and day two, a little part and then day three and so on and so on and so on. So it takes around about three weeks to really start seeing what's down there, which is the root of the experience. It's what you went through. Um, it's the origin story, which has produced the whole story. And then um, after that, once you've seen that, then you can actually change that into something, reconceptualize. You can't change what's happened to you. It's always there. But you can take the sting and, and the wheat out. Because in the three weeks as I'm doing this, ask, this, this gathering awareness, this reflect, this writing, and I will explain step four and five. Now, as I'm doing these five steps, I am weakening this more and more, and I'm transferring the energy. What to? I'm transferring it over to building a new thought. So first of all, that thought looks like this. Got all these props here small so it takes me about 21 days to get this reconceptualized into this now this gets smaller and smaller i just don't have a small one of these on my table 
people at the moment, but it's small and it's lost its sting. It's weak. And this is the new way that I'm going to see myself. So, okay. There was maybe an abusive relationship that you're in and you keep getting into these abusive relationships. So that's all this. And you just, it's making you so anxious and like whatever. And so you do this work and by 21 days you realize, okay, it's because I was abused as a child, maybe, and you didn't even know about that or you'd suppressed it or whatever. So that's your story. It never goes away, but it controlled you and it controlled your relationships. Now you realize, okay, that's a reason, but that's not the truth. The truth is that I'm totally lovable, totally capable of moving forward. And that anxiety is just because I hadn't quite processed this and I don't have confidence and I have whatever shame, et cetera, et cetera. And those aren't the truth. So this is how I'd like to be, but it's tiny. This has still got the potential to come back. It's not strong enough yet to override this growing back. So we need another at least 42 days. So two more cycles of 21 to grow this and to stabilize it. So we see that, and I'm giving you very visual analogies. By day 42, it's grown. I'm doing five steps daily, but now only for three to five minutes, super quick. Uh, but those do the world of wonder. They they help you get more insight, more ways of strengthening this, more ways of seeing yourself more. So you're adding more, you're growing more and more onto how you want to be. And that's overriding that other thing. By day 63, we're looking at a really nice, and I've got more plants, but I don't have enough hands to pick them up. But you get the, the gist of it. I've gone from this tiny one, and I've now got this very strong, stabilized, automatized habit. And what we want is that 95% of our day is run by what's automatized. In other words, an automatization doesn't mean robotic or unintelligent. It means extremely intelligent. And so intelligent, because we're phenomenally intelligent, it's a driving force, and it can be a toxic intelligence or it can be a healthy intelligence but it's a sweet super super intelligent but you don't want this intelligence driving you you want this kind of intelligence driving you this is too strong to drive you this will override so we have to get this strong enough big enough to get through the subconscious into the conscious mind when you're triggered in, in, a, in an equivalent situation so you're starting a new relationship and as you sit down for the first date you know this that this starts trying to rear its head. But because this is strong, it's going to have a hard time getting through. And this is going to come up. So you're going to be able to go into that date with a different view of yourself and your ability to form a relationship, etc. And all the elements and all the details that are involved in that process. So that's the big picture. So we got to, to the first step of writing, which helps the two sides of the brain to really work together. Um, it is a pouring of your thoughts on the paper with absolutely no organ, no particular order. You just it may it very often doesn't make any sense, and that's great. The more the more you get up, because what you're doing is you're bringing up all kinds of things from the unconscious, all kinds of thoughts with things, thoughts with memories that you hadn't even thought of before. Plus, you are revealing more of that root of the toxic thought. So the writing process does a million different things, but that's one of them. And it activates the basal ganglia in the brain, which is deep inside the brain that helps with cognitive fluency. And those get stuck when we're very anxious and when we are being triggered by something toxic and it's dominating our thought pattern. So when we do this work, we activate our basal ganglia and we start freeing them up and it becomes, it become, they become looser again. And writing really facilitates this process a lot. So the first stage of writing, I, I've developed a system called the Metacog, which I did with my patients for years and it's phenomenal. You can write, you don't have to use it but it is very efficient and very quick at getting to the core of an issue more and more insight deeper and quicker. So I, I teach that in my books, um, this book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, my Neurocycle app, I have a video, we're putting more and more content out on how to do the Metacog and how to do this. And multiple, I've got TikTok, I've got you know Instagram to be able to help people to podcast, et cetera, to learn this in different ways, but it's, it's all there. So essentially step four is also a writing step where you look at what you've written, but now you're organizing it. So it's very much a, this has happened, what am I going to do about it? I call it the recheck. And it's where you reconceptualize and you are reconstructing what you've deconstructed in the first few steps. Because that third step is a real deconstructed mess. It's like bashing down that house. If you're rene renovating a house, what's chopping down that ugly weeds out of the garden or it's like the mess of the computer everything's going crazy but ah, i'm starting to see what's going on now so it's looking ah this is the problem and then you you reconceptualize to work out ways that are going to help you um see this thing differently um and so um an example would be something like okay 
I understand now that this relation, constant relational issue, where I just don't ever allow a relation to go beyond a certain point because of a trust issue. This trust issues definitely come from me seeing um, parents having terrible issues in their marriage, and I just didn't trust that marriage could work for. And you didn't realize that, that was an issue, and so whatever. And so you say, okay, but that was their marriage. This is not me. It was coded in. I'm editing the code. I want this relationship. I'm totally capable of forming. I don't if this is the one but i'm open to now the possibility and that would be reconceptualization to get to that level will not happen in one day it will take at least a cycle of 21 days and um, to get to a level of that sometimes you're going to get real good clarity in 21 days other times you are going to get to a point where you say okay this is as far as i'm going to get now i'll stabilize this and then i'll go to another cycle i mean i've had some patients with such severe trauma that it's taken them up to 12 cycles which is two years of work to get to the point where they actually can finally say all right i'm ready for a relationship others that it's the first you know it's so different every struggle is different every person's unique you hear this all the time it's really real and there's no recipe there's no formula there's no the time that i give is the is the pure hardcore mind brain science neuroscience of how we can rewire the brain so that's what that whole you know, element and concept is, but how many cycles you need, exactly what you'll see at each point. I mean, very often what happens is as you're processing through at day 21, around the day 18, 19, 21, you can actually feel worse. And it's called the treatment effect. And it's so often the case. And I mean, I'm sure you can relate and everyone listening can relate that you, you know, you start, okay, I'm going to deal with this issue. This is a pattern in my life. I've got to deal with this issue. I'm going to start doing all this stuff. I'm, you know, this anxiety, this pattern, this whatever. Because when you identify those four signals, you're basically identifying a pattern that's consistent, that's disruptive to you. And you start seeing the reasons why. It's just, it's, it can be soul destroying. It can be like, oh my gosh, this should never have happened. I had stolen childhood or I've had stolen time or and, and we've got to grieve so there's a grieving that happens and that comes along with feelings of depression and, and anxiety but it's different to where you started where you where the anxiety cripples you because you just can't put a label to it you just don't know what it is it's just like there versus okay i'm more anxious but it's different i'm anxious because of what happened and then you've got to keep moving forward what's which is what the system of the neurocycle helps with so this can be used a lot of therapists uh, there's thousands of therapists around the world that do their own therapy and have their own thought but they're putting it into this cycle you don't have to go to i mean i'm all for therapy we need help and support but you can also you've got to live with yourself 24 7 so between therapy sessions or coaching or counseling or if you're not having you can still do this because we can learn to code to edit the code this is a very um it's a very human thing to do we do it we do it you've even done it without even knowing about doing it we're doing it when we learn to cope with something we've edited our code i'm just formalizing it scientifically and helping people to get into an organized system so that we can be very proactive in managing mental health i'm really glad that you just brought up therapy because that's actually what I was thinking is sort of like, as you're explaining the neurocycle, it sort of seems to me, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, but it's sort of teaching people to be performing psychotherapy upon themselves on their own mind in a way. Um, whereas like a lot of psychotherapy is, you know, the therapists are challenging certain thoughts, you know, certain beliefs that you may be holding onto deeply and are creating certain issues and whatever, aspect of your life, whether that's your relationships, your social life, your whatever it is, your health, and and kind of going to the roots of that and working on changing that and shifting some of those core belief patterns. So do you see any, any, I guess, you know, I wanted to ask, when you look at what psychotherapists do, and now I think also we have to include in that realm, you know, I think coaching is becoming such a, a large field, health coaching, Huge. performance coaching. And I want to kind of hear your your perspective on on coaching and therapy and maybe how that fits in with with what you're talking about with the neurocycle and whether you think you know kind of traditional psychotherapists or coaches are digging deep enough or digging in the correct places in order to you know as as you know your book is titled clear up clearing up your mental mess are they are they able to do that or or do you feel like there's anything missing? I think, um, yes, I noticed that question. I think therapy is essential. Coaching, counseling is essential, but it's got to be done properly. And, you know, that's you, you're going to have, um, 
when I say done properly, that's a big word because who defines what, what properly is? Um, so I think that the, the issue here is that I'm totally in totally in favor of people going for therapy because we can get to the point where the mental health issue, which is manageable, has become a problem and then support is needed. Also, we are social creatures. We do are really good at helping each other. So I think that there's two levels here. We need to help each other more. We need to not be scared to help each other. It just If you're not a therapist, it doesn't mean you can't help yourself and you can't help someone else. There is a lot of wisdom inside of each of us. And I think that needs to be pulled on more. Our individualistic societies almost discourage that. We, we, there's a huge amount we can do for each other as a community. So I'm very um, hot on helping people understand this process, as you can see, so that you can, be, you can feel more empowered to be able to manage anxiety and depression and see them not as illness and that you're crazy or something but that there is it's very very real they have a biological impact they code in and but they can be edited and you are very capable of doing a lot of that yourself and that therapy is a fantastic support especially when you feel that the need so, so it's very much up to the individual there are some phenomenal therapists out there and there's some really bad therapists out there like they're great doctors and bad doctors and that's great scientists and bad scientists so that's inevitable and that's where each person needs to make sure that they find the therapist that works for them because what may be a really bad therapist to one is a fantastic therapist to someone else and um, as long as you are having your need met um, and that you're progressing forward I have um, one concern about uh, overarching concern about therapy and this I've had this discussion with many therapists because I train physicians and therapists I have a certified facilitator coaching program myself we are in a therapeutic program and everything we are trained people and um, that, that uh, the concern is that a lot of therapists will say that their patients just don't seem to be moving forward so when we become aware of our stuff if we just meditate and breathe and decompress and do techniques and just take a thought and try and replace it with a series of techniques, that's good, great for, the, for an interim. But in the long run, we are going to have to go and take the nail out. We, we, so you know, take the ibuprofen because at least you can get through that throbbing pain in the moment. Um, but we are going to have to get below and we're going to have to get that nail out and learn to live with a scar. And um, that takes time. So the time factor isn't always um, considered in therapy because it's not trained. It's not part of most um, therapeutic training. It's, it's fairly new. We all know things take time. We know these that habits, most people think habits take 21 days which is not actually scientific at all but it's become part of you know just it got into in the 60s a book was written based on a surgeon's experience and it became this huge popular thing and now it's taken over everything 21 days for everything and there is also we do see in the body that there are cycles of 21 days that the body goes through like to heal blisters and whatever and there's multiple cycles so there's definitely something in that three-week thing for sure that's absolutely accurate but when it comes to the mind it takes more than just one cycle and this is what I wanted to test with my research and there's some other not enough researchers that have done this I have to tell you we need more research in this field which is one thing more but at day 21 you're not there yet as I said, with that little plant, we have to go further. And I think we a lot of a lot of therapists maybe get stuck, and I can't find my little one, but the little tree, it's got stuck inside one of these trees. <laughs> um, what the what the what happens, I think, a lot in therapy is people get stuck at the um that don't go long enough and too much is done. And a lot of things are given to a person to do that may be overwhelming to them but if you take less and do it over longer periods it's very successful and so a lot of good therapists are instinctively doing this they may not do exactly 63 days but they work in cycles so every school system that I've worked in I've set up the cycles when I do when I worked in therapy I worked in these cycles and um, the, uh, there's no limit to how many cycles but so that's if I had to have a criticism that is that is definitely one that I would have if you get to a point of only let's say going 14 days and this major change in 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 the, in the client I wouldn't move on to another aspect unless it's totally in some way related I would make sure that that's stabilized before dealing with another issue because otherwise that person's going to come back and that person's going to feel frustration because hey we dealt with this now it's back again what's wrong with me and you don't want people to go into a shame spiral because that thing is very you know it's, it can take you backwards um, and that's another whole thing you have to work on so I think it's really just a matter of, of us getting the science out there and therapists applying it the other thing about therapy is the is the biggest impact of therapy is the, ther the patient therapy a therapist alliance and it's the relationship so no matter at the end of the day uh, the instinct of a therapist who's been trained and 
counsel, counselor, coach, and humans, our nature is to help someone. And our nature instinctively is there's a cause. Let's try and get to the root and let's try and find a way of solving this. This is not new what I'm saying. This is human nature. It's our instinct. So what the therapy is doing is, is really in psychotherapy and these things is really putting that into the realm of, of let me help you. Let me, let's do this as a collaborative effort. Let me, when you're in that place where you can't think and make decisions, let me give you some alternative perspectives. Let me help you see this in another way because on our own, we can get so stuck. So the neurocycle is amazing to help you find your areas to do all these things I'm saying. And you can, you can get to the point where you can get, it shows you where you're getting stuck. And so you can go to therapy and saying, hey, this is what I've seen. Now, how do I look at this? What could be another way? And that, that's the first step is the act of reach is, okay, what am I going to do? I've learned this. Now, the fourth step helps you to reconceptualize and say, okay, this is happening. What do I do? The act of reach is now applying that, practicing that new way of thinking. But in an anchoring way that keeps you not going back to the toxic, but this is what I can handle today. I recognize I'm. this has happened. This is why I'm doing this. I'll be okay. It's a statement. It's a way of anchoring us back. And um, the act of reach expanded into therapy is a way of the, helping the person find those, helping the person. Therapy I see coming in a lot in step four and step five, where there's a lot of, okay, this has happened. How can we look at this differently? And now what can you do between therapy sessions to help practice that? You know, so it's not taking away at all from therapy. It's working hand in hand. It's, it, it's creating tremendous enhancement. So I've had like neurologists using it, who are doing a lot of biofeedback sessions. They're using, they found that that was fantastic to show the patient, but then the, the carryover didn't happen. So they added the neurocycle to the program and that's made a tremendous difference. And we've done research, I've done research with neurologists in exactly doing this combination and that kind of thing. So looking at the QEG and so on. So, I mean, that's a big, a big question and a big answer. I'm very pro-therapy though, but and I'm very pro-people. If a therapist doesn't work for you, you're not under any obligation, it doesn't mean they're bad. It means that it just it didn't work for you. And don't be scared to go and find someone else. Right. I, I love the, the just taking way more accountability though, you know, for each of us in terms of managing our own mental health and, and saying, yeah. uh, you know, you mentioned I know in the book uh, is just, you know. So you're, you're, if you're experiencing depression, you know, you're not depressed, you're, you're experiencing depression. I love that terminology of how you separate that and make it clear that it's like something that you have to, or that you're able to actually manage and deal with. That's not who you are as a person. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we have, there's a lot of research that's been done on resilience and I've done indirect research on resilience and we are a lot more resilient than we think. Now that doesn't mean that we mustn't deal with trauma, that are the ways we show up, we have to deal with trauma as, as I've been describing, but the, when you, when you help someone to be empowered, um, resilience is activated. So you, then you, you get tremendously empowered to actually ask for help because we have this thing over ask for help. I'm not resilient. No, asking for help is resilience it is a recognition that this is i need another little bump along the road i need a little bit more of a catalyst i need something to help me here so i showed with my research that when you empower people to look at things in this way you can get a handle an 81 percent improvement in things like anxiety and depression which as you also mentioned from my book i said you don't you can't have depression you can have cancer you can have diabetes because there's an actual biological underlying cause but a depression it doesn't have a biological underlying cause it has a biological effect because the depression is um, what you experience it's what you have it's a warning not what you have it's an it's a warning signal so you feel depression it's an emotion and emotions are not illnesses and they are the result of so it's experience coded in producing um, the experience of depression and that depression is then telling you there's an imbalance because if it was happiness that's that's you just want to grow that there's nothing wrong with that but if it's depression that you are feeling that emotion that is your 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 brain body and mind working to help you to tell you pay attention it's a messenger um, and so that's why yeah, we've got to be very careful of saying someone has bipolar depression what we should rather say is that um, a person, one of the major signals that that person is having in their life um, that is a mental health problem is that they have debilitating signals of depression. That means that it's pointing towards debilitating bodily symptoms and behaviors and perspectives that are debilitating them to the point where there is 
obviously some biological impact because the code was coded in. So there's a bad code. There's a code that looks like this. So we rather than say the up and down swings is just another way of seeing the, the level of, of, um, of toxicity or trauma that the source is. So if I just treat the, if I just use the word diagnose and treat in the medical model or the bio, bio, bio model, um, then all I'm doing is putting a bandaid on the wound, providing the ibuprofen for the nail in the foot. And although the ibuprofen absolutely fantastic for that time, you cannot live on ibuprofen. You have to remove that nail at some point because eventually the ibuprofen you study will mess up your liver. So, you know, you don't want to do that and it'll do other things. So um, the point there is that we've got to be careful of looking at our life experiences um, that are small issues and massive problems as um, path pathologies in the medical sense. We should rather look at the biopsychosocial spiritual aspect, which then looks at the whole person in their environment, what has been coded in from that cultural belief, that childhood upbringing, that marriage, that business environment, COVID, what's coded in, how has that impacted them biologically? Is there now a major gut issue? Okay, let's turn to medicine to treat the gut issue, but that's the ibuprofen. I now need to um, also address why that gut issue came. There's behavioral issues. There's a lot of anxiety, whatever. So you've got to now look at the whole story. So what's that person's environment? What's their context? What are they going through? And we have to help the person um, address how they're going to reconceptualize that, deconstruct and reconstruct, which then builds their resilience for how now are we going to change the environment? Because you can't go straight to the socioeconomic and fix it tomorrow as much as I wish we could. But if someone is in an obviously an abusive relationship, they must be removed and that kind of stuff. Obviously, the most dangerous things we're going to, to, to address like that. Um, if people are lucky enough to let other people know that they need that kind of help. But if it's a situation where you are in a, um, you know, the environment, the context, you know, if, if it's the school that you're going to or the work environment that you're in, the people that you're working with, those, those are all impacting the way that you're functioning. So it's to help you understand that, find that cause, understand that that's a cause and how now how can we make this work for you? It's happened. What are we going to do about it? Um, and that's very, you know, that's a huge part of us being empowered. Um, and that's why I talk about empowerment. And that takes the help of, ourselves and others it's very collaborative and it's very much in involving the environment and it's very much based on our values the whole spiritual side of us as well what do we need what is meaningful for us etc yes i love it well dr leaf i could keep going with you for hours but i know uh, we got a, a cut off here so um you know for people who want to find out more about your work or all of your all of the stuff that you have going on i know you've got podcasts you got books you got lots of stuff where can people find you at well my books are available wherever books are sold and on our website too my website's drleaf.com this is my latest book cleaning up your mental mess the neuropsych app which is literally me giving you therapy walking through this whole process that you've just described which is also getting also has lots of resources and things that's available on itunes and google play my podcast is called the same name as that latest book cleaning up your mental mess i'm on instagram dr caroline leaf for Facebook, Twitter, and just started on TikTok. I'm awful at TikTok, but they're hilarious and funny because it's filled with good information because I'm still learning how to do TikTok. <laughs> but I'm available there as well. So people can find me there as well for a different way of understanding this concept. Great. Yeah, I recommend you guys go check out all of that. And for those who listened and enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. If you prefer to listen to the audio version of the podcast, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other major streaming platforms. So Dr. Leaf, again, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise with my audience here. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.